You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guest on today's episode of Talking Taiwan is Julia Price, an arts educator now based in Thailand. I've invited Julia onto Talking Taiwan to reflect on her time in Taiwan. She spoke to me about working on the ICRT morning news show, her connection to the Cloud Gate Dance Theater of Taiwan, and the descendants of African People's Group in Taipei. She also spoke to me about raising TCKs, the racism she's experienced, and her thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement as a woman of color. Thanks for being on the podcast, Julia. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Great. Um, so you're in Thailand now, and you just got out of quarantine, right? Yes, it was a very interesting experience, although I think it's shared with many people worldwide these days. So, Yeah, I ended up... Um, traveling um, from Thailand to the UK um, to be with family and then ended up kind of stuck there, <laughs> which is not a bad place to be stuck. I was in Liverpool and London. Um, so then eventually when I made it back to Thailand, um, I had to do two weeks of quarantine in a uh, kind of luxury quarantine hotel. Um, I think that Thailand is using a little bit of the quarantine situation to help recoup their tourism industry so it is required that you stay in government regulated and government approved hotels for your two weeks of quarantine wow interesting i just spoke to a guest about the quarantine experience in taiwan it was interesting to see just the comparisons i also had to quote quote unquote quarantine when i got to london but it was a lot less regulated they just depended on me being honest they were uh, supposed to come and check on me and i heard in canada they do actually come and check on you and call you at the house i received no check-ins but i was good i did self-quarantining um, in london so yeah a lot of people doing it so let's start with talking a little bit about like where you're from like where you grew up and then where you and then after that, what brought you to Taiwan? Yeah, um, so I am originally from the U.S. And um, in undergrad, I was at Colorado College and I was studying um, a dual major. I was doing performing arts and also pre-med. And in the arts department, one of my professors um, was Taiwanese. She is Taiwanese, um, Wang Unyo. She um, is an amazing powerhouse woman and she organized an event that was a student exchange over summer and so that was my first time going to Taiwan was um, when I was in undergrad and I was also studying uh, Mandarin as my minor so um, after graduating um, I had it on my bucket list to live outside the U.S. for a year and then I just decided to go back to Taiwan because I really liked it. Um, first when I went as a student I was in Kaohsiung and that was a very different experience than Taipei. So when I moved to Taiwan, um, I was in Taipei. And then um, one thing led to another. And I ended up from one year of wanting to be there, it turned into five. And I understand that you have a connection to the Cloudgate Dance Theater of Taiwan. Oh, yeah. So Cloudgate uh, Unmen is uh, one of the foremost modern dance or contemporary dance companies in the world. And um, Lin Huaimin was the founder and my professor, Wang Wenyo, she was first generation with that dance company. So the first year that that company existed, she was dancing. And she's an amazing woman who um, I met again at Colorado College and she mentored, <laughs> she mentored me through um, one of my first 
uh, teaching jobs, and I was teaching Chinese dance to little kids on Saturday classes. It was so much fun. So we went through uh, circle dances. We went through scarf dance, um, the long sleeves dance, fan dance. So um, I know a bunch of Chinese dances. Um, then fast forward to when I um, was graduating. Again, I wanted to kind of keep in touch uh, with her and with um, Taiwan. And so she has a really strong connection with the arts in Taiwan still. Um, and actually, um, recently, just uh, six months ago, maybe, I reconnected with her in Beijing. Um, I took a certification program, and she was the professor teaching certified movement analysis. Um, she's retired from teaching technique, and now she does movement analysis and um, movement studies. Um, she's also um, a kind of associate professor still um, at Taiwan University of the Arts, NTUA. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, she was a very pivotal um, person in my life. I would not be here where I am today if it wasn't for her. Right. right. What kinds of things were you doing in, while you're in Taiwan? Uh, we did mention that you were working on RCRT, the news, news radio, but then you were doing some other things as well. Yeah, when I first got to Taiwan, it's kind of a crazy story. I um, I had a few names on a list of contacts, but, you know, that was back in the day when I didn't really have a cell phone yet. Um, so this was back in the um, late 90s. And so, uh, like 99 into 2000. And so I was making phone calls still on pay phones to try to get in touch with people, to meet up with them. Um I would go to an internet cafe every now and then and like send one email back to, you know, my friends and family in the U.S. So it was a very different time for social media and keeping in touch. So I really felt like I was in a very different place, like by myself. So that was a really good experience, I think. Um, I also got to discover this city on my own, um, which I think was a blessing um, very much in retrospect. Although at the time, again, it was a little bit like eh, stressful. So um I started off um, trying to find classes um, and or an internship in dance because I was still studying dance. And I also wanted to continue studying Mandarin, but I had to make money. So um, I investigated teaching English a little bit and that worked out for a while. Um, and then I started doing um, some writing and um, recording, voice recording work. And that's eventually how I um, connected with um, some people who were in the newspaper. Um, uh, in Taipei and uh, the Taipei Times and um, Tom, Thomas Walk actually um, shout out to him he was the one who introduced me to ICRT and then eventually I applied and then was working in the newsroom there um, and yeah Thomas Walk it would be an interesting person um, on your podcast maybe because he lived and grew up in Taiwan actually um, but he's like a, a waigora and he's, he's just like a white guy from the states um, and he's now married to a Taiwanese woman, and they have two beautiful um, kids, and they're still living in Taiwan. Actually, they moved uh, back to Taiwan. He moved back to Taiwan. So, yeah, that's how I eventually made it uh, to the world of ICRT and voice recording. So that was what I was doing mostly. And then I eventually um, connected with the Taipei American School and was working in their dance department uh, for a while as well. Wonderful. Well, I don't know if you know this, but actually um, the concept of Talking Taiwan was actually came up with by Rick Monday. Um, oh, yay! Them, yeah. So what was it like uh, working on the morning news at ICRT? It was really exciting. Um, 
my uh, former um, coworker, Bill Thiessen, he um, passed a few years ago, um, but he was an amazing mentor as far as just helping me um, learn the ropes and uh, do all the correct pronunciations of all the sports teams, especially. Um, and then uh, Rick Monday, of course, was a very dynamic personality at that time. Um, and so he ended up, um, yeah, really kind of helping to, I think, um, establish uh, a very strong at that time kind of like American fun kind of presence um, in the newsroom and at the radio station. So yeah, it was a very um, dynamic group. Um, it was an early shift though. So my newscast was at 6 a.m. Wow. Um, the first one. So I had to get to the office by five. So I was up every day at like four. So yeah, that was a, a good experience. <laughs> I'm working on getting Rick on the podcast. How's your Chinese? Yeah, I will speak. I'm okay talking, but like my reading comprehension is so slow. <laughs> you also had kids when you were in Taiwan. Wasn't your daughter born there? Yeah, so both of my girls were born in Taiwan. And it's funny because when we eventually moved, they were still small. And here in Thailand, their school has like International Day. And so the kids, you know, show their national pride and there's like a parade. And so the first year when uh, my older daughter was in kindergarten, she thought she was Taiwanese. She was like, I'm from Taiwan, I'm Taiwanese. And so she wore like a jipao, like she wore like the full on like, you know, like formal Chinese wear. And they let her, right? What are they going to say? Like, and so like the first year she was like fully Taiwanese. Uh, and then the next year they started talking to her about, well, you know, when we go back in the summers to the U.S., maybe you could have one of one side of your flag, Taiwan, and one side of your flag, the U.S., because they have to make flags. And so she's like, oh, okay. And I think that she's had the top, she had the top half of the chief out, and then at the bottom she wore jeans. And so then like her, third year it kept like evolving the third year she put our state flag Arizona on one side and then she had Taiwan on the other side still mm -hmm. and then she had a t-shirt that was like I love Taiwan and then she was wearing jeans mm -hmm. and then by the fourth or fifth year um this was when she was almost in middle school maybe um she was actually the flag bearer one year for Taiwan because in that year they didn't have any other Taiwanese kids um, in, in her class. And so she's like, I'm, I'm from Taiwan. I was born in Taiwan. So she was like the flag bearer one year in elementary school for Taiwan. Um, so yeah, she was born in Taiwan. And um, when we moved, she was five years old and she was like fluent in Chinese um, for a five-year-old. So she still studies Mandarin and actually um, I'm, yeah, encouraging her to continue doing it. So she, her reading comprehension is actually better than mine. <laughs> um, yeah, and then my, my younger daughter, too, also is still studying Mandarin. And so, uh, yeah, they were both born there. Yeah, have they been back at, uh, since? Um, we went back two or three years ago. We really wanted to go back this past summer or winter, but the whole COVID situation threw a wrench in that. Um, they they hope to go back soon. Um, we just love Taiwan. We have such fond memories and friends that are still there, and it's forever a part of us. Yeah. What, what would you, could you tell me a little bit more about your experience living in Taiwan? Like, what were some of your fond memories? And then, then also, did you come across any discrimination or racism being a person of color? Yeah, um, actually connected to my, my kids. Um, um, generally, in um, Taiwan, I, 
Taiwanese people are amazing. They're super friendly, super helpful. So I think I was listening to episode um, 88 of yours with some with a couple of my friends, um, Alyssa Russell and um, Liz Williams, about their experiences. And we're all from the states, but I'm biracial, and so I have more of a lighter skin tone that is harder for people to immediately identify. So um, one really strong memory is when. Um, I was walking around with my husband, who he, he's also a Waigoda and he's white. And I was pregnant. I was visibly pregnant. And we were at one of the metros in tai, Taipei. And um, my husband was like, he turned to me and he's like, I wonder why those people are looking at us. So there was, there was like people were just kind of staring at us. And I was pushing, I was pregnant with my second daughter and I was pushing the stroller with my um, first daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they I was like, I, I don't know, maybe it's just, you know, like pregnant foreigner, who knows? And he was like, I bet you they think you are my Filipino nanny. And I'm walking around and I knocked you up. I was like, <gasps> I was like, what? And it was really interesting to hear that. I never would have thought that. But then around that same time, or I thought back on a couple of conversations I had had with people where people in Taiwan would look at me and they would try to identify and they would be like, Oh, Nishan Aigwara. And like, where are you from? Mm-hmm. And I would say, I'm from Washame Gorda. And they're like, no, no, like where are your parents from? So they would try to find mm-hmm. out like, no, what's your actual background? I'm like, no, my parents are from the U S also. And I would have to explain to them. Which, uh, um, yeah. I'm like, I'm a mixed, mixed blood and da da da. But then sometimes they would ask if I was Filipino or if I was Indian descent just because my skin tone. Also, uh, Costa Rican, that was another. So I would get a few different varieties of where I was from, just according to my skin color, just because they could not believe that I was possibly an American with having darker skins. Yeah. But generally, everybody was really sweet. Um, there, there were a couple of times where, again, it's, it's more curiosity than, than malice, where Taiwanese people would just like touch my hair. Like I would be on the bus and they'd be like, oh, it's so soft. Um, you know, like touch my curls, um, or especially too, the our children were absolutely fond over everyone. And I think a lot of foreigners experience this, no matter what the skin color. Um, their babies are, are like kind of like this object of adoration, like, oh my gosh, your baby's so cute. And so they would like just frequently we'd be in a restaurant or we'd be in like the local, you know, like mom and pop shop and they would just like take our baby and like carry her and be like showing her around to people. And at first it was super shocking. Yeah. Um, and then I realized I was like, Oh, that's just, that's just how they do it here. And it's totally safe. And so we would just like let people <laughs> go and like have fun, you know, taking care of our baby, like free babysitter for 20 minutes. So yeah. <laughs> You eat your meal, right? You actually get to eat your meal. <laughs> exactly, right. I was like, awesome. <laughs> wow, I love that. That's great that you had such a great experience. Um, and I understand that um, you and Alyssa um, had actually established an organization called the Descendants of uh, African Peoples while you were in Taiwan. Yeah, uh, we, we had a group called DAP. Um, and the Taipei Times did a really nice article reviewing us um, about it. And we originally started off just as a social group. Uh, Lissa and I met um, at that on park um, from another friend recommending that we just have a get together uh, because, you know, there aren't many at that time, there weren't many Americans in Taipei necessarily. And then there were definitely not as many non-white Americans in Taipei. So we met up 
and just to like, you know, see somebody that had similar experiences and say hi. And then that group kind of met again and again, like two or three times and started to realize like, hey, we should, you know, try to like get a group together. And so it was originally just designed as a social group to gather descendants of African people from all over. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I originally never felt as American as, as in my whole life as when I moved abroad. When you're in the U.S., you don't feel like you're an American citizen. You just, you feel like you're from Arizona or you feel like you're from your hometown. Hmm. You feel like you're whatever sports team. And then when I was in Taipei, you're, you're obviously, everyone's a foreigner who's not, you know, Taiwanese. And then the foreigners automatically start finding each other just because you want similarities, right? So then within that foreigner group, it was nice to find Americans and then black Americans. So then I realized like, oh, wait, there are black French people here and there are black British people here. That's and black Canadians. Oh my gosh. Oh, wait. And then it was really interesting conversations we had because then like talking about the whole hyphenated title, for example, in the U.S., we're very much like African-American. Right. And the British people and the French people don't do that. They're like, no, we're just French. We're not like black French. I was like, huh, that's interesting. So <laughs> interesting just to see the differences in the different countries, but we were all descendants of African people. So that was the commonality that we created the group under. And then eventually it was really cool. We started to branch out um, into more informative kinds of get-togethers, celebrating um, maybe holidays, um, African festivals, or like U.S.-based festivals and holidays, and just, you know, educating each other about our culture. And then that connected at some point with um, the trade organization, the Taiwan, at that time, there was like a Taiwan African Trade um, Corporation, and they they got together and had an annual kind of gala or cultural celebration. And we were invited to um, organize entertainment events. So we did like fashion shows and we did um, dance performances, um, again, connecting with the African community in Taipei. So it was really wonderful cultural learning experience um, for me personally, but I think also for those people in the group and for Taipei, it was really, it was a great um, experience overall. How long did the, was the group in existence? Um, it was like almost three years, like two plus. Um, and then unfortunately, well, and fortunately, things happened for a reason. Um, I got this job and then I moved. Um, and it was really hard for Alyssa, I think, to maintain by herself. Um, so I think she kept it going for maybe a half a year or so, maybe one more year. Um, and I had aspirations to start a group of descendants of African people here in Thailand. Um, and I never did. It's interesting recently with the whole Black Lives Matter movement really um, becoming something of an international understanding. I mm -hmm. might consider um, kind of starting that group now here in Thailand. But yeah, at mm -hmm. that time, it was about three years we did it. There might be more of a need or an interest in that now, right? Yeah, I'm thinking the same. Mm -hmm. Going back to when you were living in the U.S., did you experience any racism or discrimination? Yeah, um, when I was a kid growing up, um, I was called the N-word once or twice on the school playground um, because my mom is white and my dad is black. Um, I would all the time, when my mom would come pick me up, they'd be like, are you adopted? You know, like stuff like that. Um, again, going into um, later years as an adult, I don't have those um, experiences as overt racism, but there's a lot of that kind of um, 
uh, more subtle things like expecting that I know how to sing because I'm black or expecting that I like the watermelon because I'm black, like things like that. People actually still say, yeah. Um, one time I was uh, working at a restaurant and a guy, older white gentleman sat down and this was in North Carolina. So it's kind of North South. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like, you are the prettiest colored girl I've ever seen. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I didn't know how to answer that. I just walked away. I just, <laughs> I walked away and I, I just went to my manager and I was like, I, I, can you take care of this customer? Cause I can't. <laughs> Cause he really thought he was giving me a compliment, you know? And so I was like, well, I don't, I, I don't have the time to start this conversation with this gentleman. And he probably wouldn't really want to hear how I would try to help him understand that what he just said was messed up. <laughs> so stuff like that happens yeah how did you deal with that deal with that as a kid because you said you had kids calling you the n-word or you know saying things about like that you're adopted um and it it was really shocking and i it was it was literally paralyzing um because i i knew enough to know that i had been insulted and that it was it was aggressive and I didn't know, I literally didn't know how to react to it. It was on the playground. And so I just, I, I like my body flooded with adrenaline and I just like stood there and the kid like said it and then ran away. So I couldn't mm-hmm. even really um, react with him to it. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't a friend of mine. I wasn't really in groups to see him in my class or anything afterwards. So there was, it was really um, kind of an unfortunate event where it just like dumped all of this kind of like toxic yeah. feeling into me. And I, I was kind of powerless to do anything at that time. Um, eventually, you know, like by the end of the day, I was kind of processing it a little bit more. I don't think I ever said anything to the teachers because it was, I was again, so fast. I think I was, mm-hmm. I think I reacted first in shock and then shame. And mm-hmm. then I just kind of tried to get on with the rest of my day. Mm-hmm. Um, but that only happened in elementary school. And then once in maybe like early middle school, um, by the time I was in high school, I think, the landscape of the racial conversations had become more sophisticated. So again, people by high school know what they are or are not supposed to say in public. Mm-hmm. So I, I never really met with that kind of overt racism again. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and it's- yeah interesting time now that what's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement, which actually started in 2012, and then now there's been a resurgence of interest since the murder of George Floyd. And I think you have a very interesting perspective because you got to see what was happening in a lot of different places. You mentioned that you're in the UK and then you're in Thailand. Could you talk about like what you've been seeing right now and then also your thoughts about that, like how you reacted in 2012 and what you see now? Yeah, in 2012, um, and I think, again, referring back to episode 88, um, Liz mentioned um, and Alyssa echoed that in 2012, um, the murder and then subsequent um, uh, letting go of any criminal charges um, with the police force was a sad event. And at the same time, not surprising. So um, the the initial trigger for the Black Lives Matter movement wasn't in and of itself unique, um, but I was really happy that the movement started. Um, and 
but then wasn't surprised that it didn't really continue much past, I don't know, maybe, maybe not even a year, I think, as far as media coverage and um, support in social media or bringing awareness to the issue of the ongoing um, police violence and injustices that happen in the black community. Um, so fast forward to um, the recent resurgence and kind of revival of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I think, again, Liz put it well to say that it was, it was just kind of a culmination of a, a lot of events worldwide that made it possible to gain a lot of momentum this time around, I think. Um, I think the visceral reaction people had to watching the full video of George Floyd being murdered was very impactful for people. So I think that was unique. Um, it is absolutely not a unique experience, unfortunately, in the black community. So I think that message needs to be heard that that is something that happens at least on a weekly basis in many cities in the US where there's an unjust um, um, use of force or inevitably sometimes a murder that happens. And I think that particular video was the first time people couldn't get away from it. They couldn't make any excuse for it. They couldn't explain it away. Although I've still seen people trying to explain it. It's really interesting that the character slamming that's happening. Sometimes people say, oh, well, George Floyd wasn't a nice guy. I'm like, it doesn't matter what kind of guy he was. You can't murder people in public. It doesn't, that's not okay. Um, so I think also um, at the time during COVID, everyone was in lockdown, supposed to be. And so there was a lot more free time, quote unquote, for people to see things on social media and then not dismiss it so quickly people really had the time to think about something that they see rather than just clicking and moving on. And I think that helped to kind of culminate in an awareness of the issue, but also, which I think is the best part, is um, understanding that everybody has a stake in the game. Everybody has some place to claim their own actions and their own level of knowledge and behavior patterns. So even myself, for example, as a biracial non-white person, I have so much more privilege because I'm light-skinned. So I need to claim that. And I, I try to be very open with that whenever racial conversations happen. Um, like my experience is so different from Alyssa's. Um, so I'm on the bandwagon to try to understand these new terms that are being explained to everybody as far as like, what is an ally? Um, what is, what is privilege? Um, and having the courage to have those conversations, I think is the biggest difference and the biggest blessing in this resurgence of Black Lives Matters. So being in the UK, for example, they also, like many cities all over the world, um, had hundreds and in some cases, thousands of people turning out for these um, rallies that were predominantly nonviolent, big pat on the back to everybody. I think that there were some, there was some looting that happened right in, in LA, for example, and other places, but that was an exception to the situations, I think, for the most part. And I think on both sides, I think the police force did a great job of holding the barriers for the rallies and maybe they would shoot off some tear gas. But generally, I think like if you look at how many cities worldwide had rallies, there I think has been a really good job of people just showing their um, disapproval, but not inciting violence. So I think that's been great to see. Mm -hmm. and people are having more conversations. So in the UK, there's been rallies. Um, my daughter went to some, and she, again, is light-skinned. So there was a difference in her experience versus, like, 
the the British people of African descent, especially the men, right? And so at the rallies, they would say like, what do you think? And how do you feel as a person, you know, in this experience? And she's like, I'm, I'm from the US and like, I'm a, I'm a woman, you know, like maybe you should talk to this guy over here who's actually like living the experience here in London. Um, and then here in, in Bangkok, there was an online um, gathering. We, we weren't really doing any outside gathering because of the lockdown, um, but there was um, a webinar and kind of like an online uh, rally, if you will, where there was information shown about the history of the Black Lives Matter movement and um, the different victims that are trying to be honored with the continued education and, and fight for change, um, connecting with local um, advocates. And um, we had a, a moment of silence the entire um, seven minutes of um, George Floyd's attack. So it was a good um, virtual kind of connection here in Bangkok. And then um, I have a former, um, I have a friend who was a former student um, He's now a, a, an artist uh, living and working in LA, but he's Taiwanese. And he was going to a lot of the rallies and it was really interesting having conversations with him, um, Tom Sai. He is a very aware um, artist. A lot of his work has to do with social um, injustices and the identity of Taiwan, for example, um, any kind of some, some kind of political context in his work. Uh, but he went to the rallies and kind of was simultaneously noticing his own bias, noticing his own reactions. And then I was just super impressed. He would, he went home and he would like think about it. He's like, you know, as I was walking towards the rally, I saw some looting happening and it was like a, it was like a Latino or interracial couple who was running in and out of the stores. You know, it wasn't even a black person. It wasn't a, a white person. He's like, so that was really, because he's like, I kind of checked myself on that. And then as I was walking towards the rally, there were some other like black people walking with me. And I noticed if I was comfortable or not being close to them, da, da, da. Um, he does a lot of break dancing. So he's very comfortable in multiple um, communities, um, especially just as an artist. But he was just really processing his experience, his biases, his perception as he was investing in experiencing this event. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a perfect example of what is the best outcome of this current resurgence for Black Lives Matter is to look at injustices that are happening and don't overreact by just shutting down the conversation and getting defensive. Take some time to educate yourself, read a book, um, understand what the issues are on both sides, and then be ready to have a conversation. Because I think the conversation is what's the most important thing. Right. I think what's most important is like hopefully the self-awareness that's happening and, and people can uh, question their own biases or preconceived notions for sure. And in my school setting, um, because it's an international school, there are a lot of TCKs or third culture kids who don't feel 100% like they belong in either place necessarily, um, whichever of the two or multiple countries that they're from geographically or from their, their background. And sometimes people try to reduce the conversation to this one city, right? Uh, that police force in that city has a problem and we're okay here. But I think everyone is ready, I think, at this point to acknowledge the fact that no matter what country you're from, no matter what socioeconomic status you have, you can acknowledge injustice and then 
it doesn't necessarily mean that you're automatically the guilty party. It doesn't automatically mean like it's your fault by acknowledging it. It's the same with right. Like, uh, like pollution or uh, right. Like global warming, like, okay, we need to acknowledge the problem. It's not like it's all your fault, but it's not like there's nothing you can do. So you have to kind of pick how much commitment you want to give to the situation, to making it better um, within your own community. And so for me, I think um, as an educator, taking the responsibility to try to imbue my teachings and my classrooms with just an awareness of the issue. Like, for example, right now, um, I work in the arts, I work in dance and film. And um, there's a K-pop group, BTS, that's like super popular right now. I don't know if you know them. And they um, donated a bunch of money to the Black Lives Matter movement. And they, they did a really big push on social media to help counteract some racism with the whole, um, uh, what, what was it? Um, oh, Black Lives Matter. And then there was like the White Lives Matter hashtag. And they kind of like took it over on social media. I love that. So those are some things that I'm bringing into my classroom to help just open the conversation for the students so that they feel comfortable just dipping into the issue within a context that makes sense in my, in my classroom. Um, so, and then in my community, I think of adults and friend groups, I think it's important for people to try to seek out different perspectives. So right now, most of my friends kind of have the same mindset. We're kind of liberal. Um, we, you know, are all in agreement that the Black Lives Matter movement is important and all of the issues being brought up are, are valid and need need response. There are two people that I know who don't necessarily have those immediate responses. And those are the people that I need to have patience to have conversations with. Because if everybody keeps talking to people who agree with them and who are saying the same things as them, then you're just living in an echo chamber and nothing's going to change. Right. So people need to have the strength and patience and caring to have mindful conversations with people they respect, but who have slightly different opinions. And that is the most important lesson, I think. I want to rewind a little bit because I'm not sure that my listeners are familiar with the term TCK, which I know stands for Third Culture Kid. Could you briefly explain that for my audience? Yeah, so a third culture kid is a or third culture person because it all right, can be the same, but it's someone who basically um, has either um, parents from different cultural backgrounds and then their physical home is in a third place. So um, they, they kind of grow up in one country or one region, but that's not the background of their parents necessarily. Your kids fit that profile, right? Exactly. So my kids fit that profile. So they're from, so like literally our perfect example, my kids are like born in Taiwan. They're not Taiwanese. <laughs> my kids are from the United States and they've never lived there more than two months. And they grew up in like for 10 plus years, they grew up in Thailand. They're not Thai. <laughs> so they just, <laughs> they kind of don't belong anywhere if you want to be a pessimist about it. But, um, the thing that we try to encourage people in that situation to recognize is that the group that you belong in is the growing group of other TCKs. So she's the most at home with all the other kids, and there are lots who have had that experience, whether it's military families, that happens a lot, or whether it's families um, from the international school system. There's just people who grow up who, like, 
never really grew up in the place that they're from. I had another example, um, my roommate in Taiwan, she um, is Polish descent, but her family originally was from New Zealand, but she only lived in New Zealand like three years. And then she moved to, oh no, like 10, 10 years. And then she moved to Taiwan. So she was neither Polish nor New Zealander nor Taiwanese, but she's a TCK. So <laughs> Interesting. We could do a whole podcast about that. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a chance to teach dance when you were in Taiwan? Um, very little. Um, I worked at a Taipei American School, Meiguo Shui Xiao, a little bit, um, and then actually got connected with um, a really wonderful woman there at the dance department, um, Deb Fleming. And she, um, shout out to Deb, she was so fun when I first uh, applied to kind of be an assistant or do projects there. She's like, oh, every morning I hear you on the radio and then I know if I'm on time or not and then I hear you do the six o'clock broadcast. <laughs> so um, I met up with her and she um, brought me on board to do some choreography projects and then one thing led to another and she actually um, let me know about this current position that I have um, in Bangkok. So Deb Fleming, another amazing woman in the arts um, and she is still there. And yeah, so that was another Taiwan um, arts connection. Taiwan has a lot of beautiful arts going on. Also film, I teach film. And mm -hmm. Taiwan has a huge film community that's growing and getting better and better and more prominent on the world stage. So yeah, Taiwan is just really top notch as far as arts goes. What do you miss most about Taiwan? Wow, there's so many things. Um, I do miss... Um, the food, I'm going to say the food, the best breakfast ever, um, Tanbing and um, uh, Tantuan, the Zimi the Tantuan, the purple rice balls. That's like, oh, my, my favorite breakfast ever in the whole world. And then um, I also miss the convenient bustling, if that makes sense. I know it sounds like a juxtaposition, but... Tai, Taipei is very fast paced. I always tell my friends that Taipei is like New York City, but everything is written in Chinese and it's a little bit more chill. Bangkok is busy too. Yes, Bangkok is busy, um, but not in the same way that Taipei is. I think Taipei has that whole like kind of late night um, Bushi ban, like cram school kind of vibe and everyone gets up super early to start working and there's just kind of that hustle that I think is a little bit from the American context in Taipei, but at the same time, there's the Chinese context of being a little bit more cultured, um, having a little bit more of like a long-term perspective. Um, and then there's just the, the independence maybe um, from like the first nations people there of just being really unique and like mm -hmm. grounded with nature and, and some arts. So it's not, only an industrial kind of bustling city. It's got a lot of nature and it's got a lot of cultural appreciation. And so just the vibe of Taipei is a very well-balanced, amazing city. I always mm -hmm. tell people if they've never been to Asia, you should totally start with Taipei. It's one of the best places ever. I'm really curious about this third culture concept. What are your thoughts on raising third culture kids? Raising my kids, um, again, I just mostly felt like a foreigner. Like, it, it, you know what I mean? Um, so they, there, were, there was one big difference, I think, that I noticed as far as like East versus West in um, parenting, 
and childcare and also um, the birthing process. That was an interesting experience because breastfeeding had just come into being a cool thing and like better for your health, et cetera, right when I was having kids. So that was good because I was going to breastfeed anyway, but I know it was a big campaign because they had to retrain women to think that breastfeeding was a good thing. Um, C-sections were still really big at that time. I hope that that trend has kind of flipped. I don't know. Um, but then when looking at the care for the mother afterwards, they have those birthing centers for um, mothers when they give birth and they have that like one month off or whatever. And then they have to like drink the soup and there's all these cultural practices. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah, that was very different from what my experience was. I was like back to work in two weeks. (laughs) But then other than that, I think just raising babies, it was really great. Taiwan culture is very um, kid friendly, very baby friendly. Um, Again, a little unlike the US, I think in some cities. And so they don't like kind of shame you for bringing a kid into a restaurant and they um, are very welcoming of babies. Like the men carry the babies. It's not just the women carrying the babies. And so that's really been nice. That was nice to see in Taiwan. Um, But yeah, as far as um, my daughters being raised in like the kindergartens and daycare centers, they were just kind of integrated as one of the other kids. They they weren't treated any differently um, that I knew of. Is there anything else you'd like to share with my listeners? Um, Just that I think it's great you're doing this podcast to kind of reconnect people who have experiences in Taiwan and then kind of bringing it back with the the wide world of podcasting. Um, And again, just I think going back on the place that podcasting and other ways of educating yourself um, can have an important role in moving forward as a human society rather than, you know, nation identified societies. I think it's nice to find commonalities um, in whatever community that you're living in and kind of work from the commonalities. And so thank you for bringing some of the commonalities of Taiwan um, out in some people that you may not be aware have that love in common for Taiwan. So. It's very interesting what you said. I think with this pandemic, all the racial tension and global support for Black Lives Matter, it makes you think that the world is definitely a much smaller place than you think. And you're right. It's not necessarily about nation-identified societies. It's about a common human experience. 100%. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really wonderful talking with you. I've been speaking with Julia Price about her experience living in Taiwan. We also spoke about the racism she's experienced as a biracial person in the U.S. and Taiwan, her perspectives on the Black Lives Matter movement, and what it means to be a third culture kid. To learn more about Julia, visit TalkingTaiwan.com. We'll also have some links to some of what was mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.